That's me. Mephibosheth. Exterminating the idolatry of shame. The message this morning is going to be about exiting a house of dysfunction, exterminating the idolatry of shame, and being seated in a secure place called a son. Three parts, one message with an exclamation point called Yeshua. Are you ready? Well, come on, somebody. You know where all things start in your Bible? We call it Genesis. We're going to call it Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Say Mephibosheth when you get there. Mephibosheth. <laughs> now you all speak in tongues, so you're all charismatic. Welcome to the camp. <laughs> Exiting a house of dysfunction. Exterminating the idolatry of shame and being seated in a secure place called a son. Genesis 2.25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not, they were not ashamed. Man, you wasn't born to be ashamed. You wasn't created to be full of shame. Somebody put that on you. It might even be you. Saints, this morning, that word naked is aram in Hebrew. It does mean physically naked, but it also means bare. It also means without possession. Are you with me this morning? You got spiritual eyes to see because it's going to require you to turn them on this morning. Of course, it means physically naked, but more true than that, it means bare and without possession. You ever been laid bare? Before the Lord, you ever been laid bare before any situation where you're like, I just kind of feel naked, right? I'm kind of undone and I can't really hide from this. I'm just, I'm bare, Lord. It's the truth about me. This is what it is. That word ashamed is boss, B-O-S. It is both an internal and external experience of disgrace or guilt because of a human state. Are you with me this morning? Because, I mean, I'm sure we all read Genesis 2.25, but have we, have we read it in the Holy Ghost? Because that's what we're going to do this morning. So, God created man, and they were laid bare without possession before him. And they did not have an internal or external experience of disgrace or guilt because of what they were made of. Any of you have some of that this morning? Listen, I understand the Lord, and I understand my own flesh, right? And I seem to despise my flesh, right? But I love the Lord. But when the two come together and that work's being done in me, why am I so conflicted, not full of joy and life? Because you have forgotten something. He knew exactly what he was doing when he began his work, not in the heavens, but inside of you. We're going to dispel some shame this morning and make sure that you're comfortable in your own skin while the Lord works some things out in you until this body's resurrected. Amen? Saints, when God created you, he created you to be naked, to be bare, right? Possessing nothing but your relationship with him. That's all you need. All you need, the core of everything you do. When you live this life and it's done and you look back, all that you did 
that will actually count is what you did for Yeshua, the King of glory. This, that means this life is a dressing room for eternity. And that should check everything that you do every day of your life. So that it might not be idolatry. This is the only place where a person can live spiritually bare naked and unashamed. You want to put my disclaimer in that? Right? I'm modest. And I think actually Christianity right, could use a lot more modesty than it has. So keep your clothes on. For you who don't have spiritual ears, but for you who can hear, we're talking about much more than that. Amen? Amen. Actually, Psalm 71 says, In you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Why pray a prayer that you don't expect to be answered? Isaiah 54, 4 says, Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Can somebody get excited for what Jesus is doing today? Isaiah 61, 7 says, instead of shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. Dang. And so they will inherit a double portion of their land and everlasting joy will be yours. You see, you hear that, but do you believe it? Because that's a long journey, isn't it? Some people spend their whole life on the journey, never getting to the destination called their inheritance because they think their inheritance is heaven, not the not the king of heaven. Come on, I'm trying to bring heaven down to you today so that you might have full joy and excitement about the salvation and transformation that's going on inside of you this morning. Can we get there? Is it okay that we didn't play a little music, right, to give you the fuzzies before we start? Saints, shame can control culture and modify behavior. That is true. But if it could transform human desire and make you free, that would have happened a long time ago. Individual internal shame can cause you to be introspective, right? At best, but it can never bring life. If you're here this morning and you identify with your shame more than you identify with the gift of his righteousness imputed to you, then this message for you this morning. You're going to have to ask the Holy Ghost right now. Holy Ghost, tune my ears, right? To this message. Let me hear what he's trying to say. Let me hear what you're saying through this man. A vessel standing before you this morning, right? No different than you and I, right? Standing here in the flesh, but being possessed by the Holy Spirit. And God is able to have a message come from heaven and flow through this man, right? And get it to your ears. You need a, you need a word from God this morning? Well, tune in. Because you're about to get one. Saints, Adam felt guilt and it caused him to hide from God. Cain felt disgrace and it caused him to murder his brother. Peter felt shame and it caused him to double down on his betrayal. And on and on and on the story goes. But you know what Jesus said in Luke twenty-two thirty-one: 31? Simon, Simon, listen. Listen to me, Simon. The adversary demanded to have you, you people for himself, 
to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your trust might not fail. That your trust might not fail. And you, once you have turned back into repentance, strengthen your brothers. Once you go into that dark place and I deliver you from it, you're going to come out with some gold nuggets to give your brother. It's going to happen whether you feel it, know it or not. In your failure, God is with you in that place to deliver you from it. And when he does and you are, sit, and you are brought out and seated right there in a place where everybody can watch, you're going to have something to give somebody. How many of you know you didn't come to just consume this morning? but to be a contributor. In order to contribute, somebody got to give you something in the first place. And when you return, Simon, strengthen your brothers. Saints, Yeshua knew something about Peter that had not yet been revealed to Peter about Peter. Are you ready? Yeshua had already summoned Peter to sit down at his table. So that he could deal with the effects of a life lived driven by shame. The entire life of Peter before the revelation of Yeshua is driven by shame. Could you put yourself in the shoes of Peter that morning? In a betrayal? How about when King Yeshua comes back and after the resurrection and says, Here's the keys, Peter, to my kingdom. In all your guilt, in all your shame, in everything that you did to me, right? Here's the keys. You'd have to say, Lord, I guess I don't have the revelation and understanding. You should have given it to James because he was righteous and just stood. Or, I mean, John was there. I mean, like, give it to him. No, 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 no. Simon Peter, I'm going to give it to you. I choose you. I guess we measure different than the Lord does. You see, even speaking about a message of shame, as soon as we start to speak about that, the first thing that you don't do is get excited. You start to identify with shame so that you think you can get the message that's being spoken. But I'm telling you this morning that in order to get the understanding of your shame that you walk in at times in your life, you must view it from the revelation of righteousness. Or you won't understand what's actually happening in your life. And joy will always be a thing that you admire. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. What? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed, right, that he had to do something for me that I couldn't do for myself. I'm not ashamed that he had to give me the measure of his righteousness so we can even get started. I'm not ashamed of that. The only way I'd be ashamed of that is if I'm full of pride. Because I wanted you to think that I was great in doing something. Because I don't really have an imputed value. I'm trying to get you to give me one because I don't feel valuable in the first place. Oh, come on, somebody. But what's, your, what's the word of God say about you? You are the same value as that of Christ Jesus. Why? Because he gave you his value so that you could work in the economy of God. Oh, come on, we're going to expel some shame in here this morning. 
Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, the power of God, the power of God. For too long, you have sat under dead principles, under cold, dead men telling you principles of God without power and call it going to church. You're not in that place this morning, saints. You're in a place where the word of God is given to you. The power of God comes along with it. It transforms you and blows your mind. <laughs> I've been walking with the Lord for 23 years, and he never fails to blow my mind. He's still my wonderful counselor, you know. Right? I just got a whole lot of questions, and I'm okay with that at this point in my life. I don't have to have the answers. I just got to have him. Are you satisfied with him, or do you need knowledge? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Sozo healing. Of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For inside of the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed. Inside of the gospel, a righteousness, righteousness, as you ought to be, as you ought to be, is revealed. A message of understanding that King Yeshua set you into a place at a table called as you ought to be, whether you feel like it or not, right? And there's a revelation of that understanding that brings you alive, imputes value to you. Right. And causes you to just to sit down for a minute. Just sit down. You ever. I'm a daddy. Right. So we're dinner table sometimes and raising kids. Sometimes I just got to say, hey, sit down. It's dinner time. Just sit down. Right. Well, I want to do this. I'm preoccupied with that. And I want to go play and I want to do all these things. Yeah, but it's dinner time, son. Sit down. There's something being given to you at this table. For the righteous, those who are as, as they ought to be, will live by trust. Oh, you thought it was complicated. No, it's not. It's just not easy when you're walking in this. Saints, this morning we're going to be reminded that the gospel that you are receiving this morning has one aim. And that is to reveal to you what you ought to be. Instead of asking the world what you ought to be or how you should dress or how you should feel or how your parenting should look, right? Or how your household should call itself a field or what job is supposed to do that for you. That'll never work. That's a demonic carrot being dangled in front of you that will always exhaust you. Yeah, the devil plays with carrots. You are, you are as you ought to be when you signed up for Yeshua to set you at his table. And you ought to be bare naked spiritually and physically unashamed before your God. You must work from that place because it was God's sovereign choice to sit you together with him in heavenly realms. And as you were still in your sin. And we must purify your vertical perspective so that your horizontal practice will follow. Joel chapter 2 verse 23 says, Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice before the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains 
in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow and the new wine and the oil will be yours. And I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarms. That's a lot of locusts. My great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. Saints, you can't be fulfilled unless you're full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God. You will praise the name of the Lord your God. Remember what that word praise meant? Reflect. You'll reflect the Lord your God while here on this earth in this old body. Wow. Verse 26, and you will never again be put to shame. And afterwards, after that, you see, you got to start from here so you can get to the next part. I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit. The name Mephibosheth means dispeller of shame. Man, what if your mama gave you that name? <laughs> Mephibosheth means dispeller of shame. How many of you grew up in a dysfunctional environment? Well, you're about to meet a man named Mephibosheth. He's a grandson of the first king of Israel named Saul, who you know forfeited the invitation to the throne by disobedience to the leading of God. I'm going to ask you again, how many of you grew up in dysfunctional environments? Yeah. Then let me, let me introduce you to a man just like you. 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1. Say Mephibosheth when you get there. Oh, we're going to get this name. Louder? All right, come on. Don't feel ashamed to say his name. Yeah, that works. Second Samuel chapter 4 is an introduction to Mephibosheth. I'm going to read you a little bit so you can get the context. You ready for some meat? You just want milk. <laughs> Give me that Mephibosheth meat. Come on. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, so Saul's out, King David's being ushered in, you're in a transaction, and you're entering into the story. When Ishbosheth, the son of the previous king Saul, heard that Abner, the general of his army, had died in Hebron, he freaks out. He loses courage. He lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of the raiding band. One was named Benai, 
and the other Rahab. There, they were sons of Ramon and <laughs> the Berethite. Somebody say redneck. <laughs> From the tribe of Benjamin, Beroth <laughs> is considered part of Benjamin because of the people of Beroth fled to get him and have lived there as aliens to this day. Verse 4, Jonathan's son of Saul, a son who was lame in both feet, he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now Rahab and Benai, the son of Ramon, set out to the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived to get some wheat, probably for their beer. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Not good. Then Rahab and his brothers Benai slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in the bedroom. After they stabbed him and killed him, they cut off his head. Dang. Taking it with them, they traveled by day and night to, er to the... Arabah, where, where they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who, you tr who tried to take your life. This day the Lord had avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Are you with me? Are you tracking? David answered Rahab and his brother Manah, the sons of Ramon, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought that he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziglag. Uh-oh. What was the reward I gave him for his good news? How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from his hand and rid them from the earth? Verse 12, so David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by, their, by the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. Wow. All the tribes of Israel came to David in Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people and you will become the ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David and Abraham, the king made a compact with them or a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. So then David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years. Are you ready for this? That was a lot of context, but you needed that. So that you can get this. 2 Samuel 4 is not a fairy tale. 2 Samuel 4 is an event in history when God intervened in men and this was the outcome. Your Bible is not a fairy tale. It is God's intervention in your life. Are you ready? 2 Samuel 4 is a, a, an event of many sons. But the reality of a real revelation of a father. This story is what our father has planned for sons who are wounded while exiting dysfunctional environments. Can you relate? 
Some of you think you've been raised in a perfect environment. You are the exact one I'm talking about. Because that's called self-righteousness. The word says that every man was handed down an empty way of life in need of some voids being filled. That includes everyone in this place. This story that we're being introduced this morning, Mephibosheth, is you. If you wonder if I'm preaching about you today, I am. I am talking to you. This story is what our father has planned for sons who are wounded while exiting dysfunctional environments. It is an inevitability in order for you to have something to bring to him to heal that becomes a testimony for the glory of his great name. Pastor Devin and Pastor Kaysen told us last week, 1 Corinthians 14, 33 said, God is not a God of what? Disorder, but rather of peace. Do you remember that word? That word for disorder was, it looks like AKA astasia, right? That's the Greek word, sit on it. But what it means, right, is uncertainty of residence. Disorder in your Bible means an uncertainty of your residence. Many of you have been there, you, you, you stay in somebody's house, but you don't really feel welcome. Or they invited you to your house, but you feel a little bit insecure because you don't really know them. Okay, uncertainty of residence. Saints, today's message is a reminder that certainty only comes through knowing your address. Acts 17, 26 said, it is God who determines the times and places where men should live and move and have their being. Where the sovereign hand of God has placed you. It's called the throne of God. Oh, do you know that the, the only seat in the Torah spoken of is called the mercy seat? And that's the one that you've been placed on. That means you'll never find rest until you find residence. I said, you'll never find rest until you find residence. And you'll never be seated until you find that place called home. Yeah, I'm not just speaking to your location and your physical address. I'm talking about that internal place where you're nomadic, never set roots because you never found a place called home. Saints, God is not the God of uncertainty. He's the God of residence. I want you to pay attention to that word seated for a minute. Hold your finger where you're at. We're going to get back there. Genesis 43:33, right? You remember the great revelation that we've been getting about Joseph? Right? The type and shadow of Messiah over the kingdoms of men and of his brothers. Genesis 43:33 says the men that Joseph had seated had been seated before Joseph in particular ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. You see, if you had sold your brother into slavery, you would have been astonished the day that he set you at his table too. And you know what was even crazier? The youngest gets a double portion while the others don't understand. How in the world is anybody getting a double portion sitting at this table? Well, because the giver is good. And they feasted and drank freely with him, it says. In Ruth 4, 2, come on, ladies. Some of you waiting for your Boaz. That's not a cuss word. That's biblical. <laughs> Ruth 4, 2 says, Boaz took 10 of the elders 
in the town and he said to him, said to them, sit down, sit right here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought that I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated. Here and in the presence of the elders of the people. And if you will redeem it, do so. But if not, tell me so I'll know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, the kinsman redeemer said. But then Boaz said, well, listen, on the day that you do, on the day that you purchase this land and receive the title deed, Naomi and Ruth of the Moabites, you will require all of them, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property. At this time, the king, kinsman redeemer said, mm -mm, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. But you know what Boaz said? Boaz said, the man who were seated right there with the elders, I will purchase them. I will take this Denzel in distress. I will take her to be my own. I'll purchase this land and everything that comes with it. And you know where he did it from? From a place called Seated. Isaiah 6.1, in the year of King Uzziah, the, the year that he died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Filled the temple. Filled the temple. Above him were seraph with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they called to one another, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth. Is full of his glory. Not the heavens. That's given. The whole earth is full of his glory. What's the word for earth in Hebrew? Adam. The whole Adam is full of his glory. Come on, somebody. When we get that, what will happen next happens to you. And the sound of their voices and the doorposts and the threshold shook. And the temple was filled with the glory of God. Wow. In Mark 3.34, Yeshua looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, This is my mother and brothers. This is my brother. This is my sister. This is my father. This is my, this is my family. Those who are seated together with me. Can you see it? Because Ephesians 1.19 says that the Holy Ghost power that you've been given is like a working of mighty strength. <laughs> a working of mighty strength, which he, Jesus, has exerted together in Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of heavenly realms. You get it. You understand it. You believe it. He's been seated in heavenly realms. But do you believe Ephesians 2, 4? But because of his great love for us, God in his rich mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. That means he placed a dead corpse of a dog on the mercy seed and the mercy seed made it come alive. In order. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, not by him. Not close to him, but with him in heavenly realms 
together inside of Christ Jesus. Wow. In order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness of Christ Jesus. Why is he working within you in all your failures and capability of sin to show his goodness, kindness and mercy and ability to raise you above these things? Saints, that's good news. Every time you see someone seated in your Bible, it is a sign that a great exchange has happened. It is a sign that a great authority has taken place and been given to you. It is a sign that a transference of inheritance has happened. It is a sign and demonstration of deliverance that is happening right here when I watch it happen in your life. Man, that ought to crush some shame. Redemption for slavery. Forgiveness for revenge, mercy for judgment, peace for strife, beauty for ashes, adoption for alienation. Saints, these things are only found in being securely seated as sons at the king's table. Oh yeah, many of you know that you are sons. But you still remain insecure. And King Jesus, he purchased your security. Matthew twenty two fourteen. Many are called or invited and summoned, but few are chosen. Saints, every one of you were created in the image of God. Amen. But not every one of you will reflect the likeness of the securely seated son because that requires a radical denouncing of your old identity together with its failures and its accomplishments. You must radically amputate what you were, how you felt about it, right? Your new creation comes with no past. When Jesus invites a man to come and follow him, he bids him and his former identity to come and die. John 12, 23 told it to us. Yeshua replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And how did he glorify him? Hello. He goes from lion. He goes from lamb. Crucify it. Now I'm a lion. <laughs> Was a lamb. Now a lion. Was a lamb, now a lion. Who are you? The boulders are righteous as lions. The righteous are both lions. I got that. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. Oh, y'all not hearing me right now. You see, you read your Bible in the English, but that Greek word, right, for kernel or wheat, right, or what he goes on to say, seed, is sperma. And if that sperma falls to the ground, it does not hit its target and reproduce. Hello? And unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and die, it remains only a single seed. But Jesus, he hit the target. And because of that, he produced what? Many sons. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me this way. Verse 27, how my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came. Father, glorify your name. Reflect your name. Reflect your generations. Have your generations through me. Have your produce through me. And how do I do that? I, I crucify my old identity and I activate my new identity by trust. Saints, if Jesus had come to the end of himself for the Father to, be, to begin to receive glory in his life, why do you think that God will receive glory in your life when you stop short of full surrender? When you stop short of full surrender to his plan, which is not just to be seated at his table, but to become fully secure at that table that you have been graciously invited to. I got a full course meal for you, saints. Are you ready? Second Samuel 4, we are introduced to, a, to many sons, if you did not pay attention. And it was only one who found what it meant to be to be a son securely seated at the king's table. And you know what? It wasn't the one that was rightfully heir of the throne. Because, king, because Yahweh set those who, seat on the, who are seated on the throne. And it wasn't the one that was entitled or next in line because that old regime had been gone. It was the one who was crippled and could not do anything for himself but run and hide and depend on God to do something miraculous for him. To do something expected, unexpected for him. To do something he did not ever deserve for him. Is that the kind of son that you are? Is that the kind of son that you are? Or have you become a son who only believes God for the small things because, well, you measure his goodness to pour out on you by your ability to perform for him? Try that, married couples. Ishbosheth is the son of Saul. Saul was a man who squandered his inheritance as a king, causing God to strip him of his rule and creating disorder or uncertainty of residence. And you know what it affected? His sons. Ishbosheth was a defeated son who let passivity poach his potential. Are you with me this morning? Ishbosheth was a defeated son who let passivity poach his potential. Jonathan was a good religious committed son. Oh, now I'm hitting it home for some of you. Jonathan was a good, a religious, a committed son with a really good resume and attendance record. But he was, had misplaced loyalties. And you know what? He died trying to prove himself to a faithless father. Benah and Rahab were zealous sons who, with misplaced passions, trying to earn the approval of man, and it cost them their heads. Saints, if you remember the story of King Saul, he and his loyal son Jonathan was who were who, who just so happened Jonathan to be best friends with David. Both fell on their swords after losing a battle in utter despair. And now King David has been raised up to rule and reign over God's kingdom. This is where you're at in this particular narrative. 
But who was the only son in the passage that did not die inside of this, this dysfunctional house? It was Mephibosheth. That, my friends, ought to get your attention. Remember verse 4, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came to Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Saints, was he crippled from birth? Was he crippled from birth? No. Listen to me. Mephibosheth was fathered by disobedience that cultivated a dysfunctional environment that led to uncertainty of residence that killed the wayward sons and afflicted the innocent ones as they were escaping. If that's not, in, if that's not you this morning, you're in the wrong kingdom. Saints, somewhere this has been you, if it's not you today. And I'm certain it's some of you today. That's why I'm talking about this. And this is the world which we now live in. And if we're going to administer the powerful and effective transformational love of God. So not just a transformation of, in, of, of intelligence or a transformation of information. But a transference of my impact to you. If we're going to actually do that, we're going to have to settle once and for all. Which son we are and stop vacillating over whether God made a good decision or a bad decision when he saved you and began to heal you of your wounded mentality. You know what that means? It's not your pity or your poverty mentality that gives God glory. Are you hearing me this morning? It's not your pity. Or your poverty mentality that gives God glory in this life. It's your joy. It's your joy in your vibrant life that comes from knowing that he has placed you at his table when you deserve to be under it. But that was his sovereign choice and he has never made one single bad choice. You know what that means? That means you're not an accident no matter what your parents said. Come on. That means you're not an accident, no matter what your parents said. Most of us were produced in here out of wedlock. Hello? And God is vibrantly and powerfully at work in you this morning. It's called gospel. Get some. It's powerful. You're not a mistake. He chose you and has made you his righteousness for his great namesake. Come on, Mephibosheth means dispeller of shame. God chose you, plucked you out so that he might tell a story through you about him, not you. And that's what we're aiming for today, saints. To break the spell of shame over your life. You say, I'm not ashamed. Yes, you are. You're going to see. Watch this. Isn't it funny that most people... Isn't it funny that most lost people are shameless, but most Christians are full of shame? Yeah. Both of those are the work of the devil. In your Bible, shame is reserved for the wicked. Not for the righteous. And not even for those who are trying to figure it out. 
Yeah. Every one of you are sons who have barely escaped dysfunction. Every one of you have suffered wounds while exiting dysfunction. But every one of you were cripples who have been invited to the king's table where there is healing. Why? Because God's just that good. Hello? I told you we were going to talk about exiting a house of dysfunction. And we're going to talk about exterminating the idolatry of shame. And we were going to talk about being seated in a secure place called the sun. So I've talked to you about exiting a house of dysfunction because that's what Mephibosheth did. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about exterminating the idolatry of shame. Are you ready? Why don't you turn to your Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1, and you know what to say when you get there. Come on, Mephibosheth. Second Samuel, chapter nine, verse one. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul? Is there anyone who's left in the old regime? Is there anyone left in that dysfunctional house? Because <laughs> I want to do something about it. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show kindness? Not for Mephibosheth's sake, but for Jonathan's sake. Just because I'm good, just because I have the right, the authority, I'm the king, and I want to be me. So I'm going to reach out and find somebody. And there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? Yep, he said, I'm your servant. Then the king said, is there not still anyone in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness to God? And Ziba said to the king, well, there is still a son of Jonathan. But listen, he's lame in his feet. Okay. The first thing, listen, that David does as king after setting up residence in Jerusalem and establishing a place called home was to reflect the father's heart by filling his table with sons. And not just sons from his own body, but sons that would become family by the spirit of adoption. Listen to me this morning. David was the king. David was a man after God's own heart. But he was not obligated by the law of Moses to show kindness to anyone. He was most definitely, though, obligated by the law of the spirit to do so. And he was a man led by the spirit of God. And so he reflected Romans 8, 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For you live according to the sinful nature. You're going to die. But if by the spirit you put the deeds, but by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you're going to live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Hello. It's been going on since Genesis. And by him we cry, Abba, Daddy. Yes, that's who you are to me. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Hello? God's speaking to you right now, whether you realize it or not. And he sends his servants to you to clarify what he's already said. I'm calling you a son. And that revelation ought to cause you to want to act like it. Verse 4, so the king said to him, <laughs> where is he? Where is he at? Come on, show me this man. I'm ready to pour out my kindness. I want you to notice something. David did not blink at the fact that he was crippled. Just like Jesus doesn't blink at the fact that you're crippled when you show up. David was not put off by a son who was not capable of everything he was because he knew that he had the power to sit him at his table and make him what he was. David was not phased by perceived inability or dysfunctional damage that occurred from his past because he knew he's about to make this man a new creation that would not have one. David knew who he was, so he knew exactly what was about to happen to this man. Remember that next time you're ministering to somebody. You have what they need, whether they know it or not. So you speak life over them and you speak to things that are not as though they are because they don't know what they are, but you do. Because David was not interested in Mephibosheth's resume. He was concerned with his residence. He wasn't, he wasn't taken by his resume. He's concerned with his residence. And if he knew I could take him out right, pluck him out of here and put him there, everything will fall into place. David knew that where he wanted to seat Mephibosheth, it was sozo for his soul. It was salvation for his soul. It was the healing that he needed. Come on, somebody needs some healing in this place this morning. How many of you know that not every healing happens at the altar when some anointed man lays hands on you? Praise God for that. But healing happens in the house of God, Amen. at the table of God. When you eat from his table and eat from his supper and feed on him, all of a sudden you become whole. Too many of you in here have been sitting in a place called a church too long, serving a thing called religion, and you're not whole. You love him. You've been serving him. or you working in the kingdom? But you're not whole and you know it. King Jesus came to make you whole. He came to make you healthy. You don't have to live in dysfunction any longer. He pulled you out of that place. I want you to notice that it was not a Mephibosheth looking for David. It was a David looking for Mephibosheth. Are you with me? It was not a Mephibosheth looking for David. It was a David that reached out and looked for a Mephibosheth that he could show his kindness to. It was a king full of mercy and a king full of kindness searching for someone that he could dispel their shame. Verse 4, and Ziba said to the king, indeed, <laughs> y'all not ready for this one. Uh, brace yourself like a man, like Job said. Uh, God said to Job, brace yourself like a man. Now Ziba said to the king, indeed, I know where this man's at. He's in the house of Makir, the son of Emil in Lodabar. That's a mouthful, and you're about to figure this out. 
Let me translate this for you so you can get what I got so I can transfer this impact to you. Can, can you hold on for that for a minute? Indeed, he's in the house. Hello, that's family. Of Makar. His name means salesman's. Of Emil, who came from the kin of Yahweh, where there is Lodabar, no word. So Mephibosheth, the dispeller of shame, is rescued barely out of a house of dysfunction. And now, when the king goes to find him, he finds him in a house of a salesman who calls himself a friend of God. But the problem is there is no word in that house. So Mephibosheth is in a family calling themselves friends of God, but the centrality of their home has no word in it. Saints, if you find a family who calls themselves friends with God, but God's word is not central in their home, they are selling you a lie. They are aiding and betting and keeping you from healing. So Mephibosheth goes from dis a dysfunctional house to a deceptive one. Mm -mm. Where were you found at? Oh, I was found in that, inside that dysfunction. And then I escaped that dysfunction. And I needed the Holy Ghost to come and wreck me. You know why? Because all I did was go from one house to another because it, the centrality of my home wasn't the word of God. Oh, I love Jesus and I'm going to float and just hear from the spirit of God. I'm going to never open my Bible. Right. And there's going to be no constitution in my life. Right. And you know that, where that gets me? I just start selling the gospel instead of giving away what God actually freely gives me. As though I had purchased it in the first place. Mm -mm. So Mephibosheth goes on from this, a dysfunctional house to a deceptive home, living in a place of, of, a, of a sellout. Instead of someone who sold out for what the word of God says about them. And then King David says to Ziba, oh, you're going to love this one. Ziba means a plant, a statue, an unmovable standard. Hey, you plant, you tree, you oak of righteousness, you standard, you unmovable, unmovable, unmovable standard. I want you to go find that man in that house that he's living in, that facade he calls God. Man, any of you settled for less? Because... You're living in a generation, saints. I want to let you know. You need to do your history. You need to do your church history. You're living in a generation, right, that men sell you a moderate dose of the Holy Ghost. They teach you behavioral modification. They give you principles without power. They do not do what they actually say because they don't believe in it. But they like what it gives them when they give it to you and you give back your efforts and your work and your tithe money and everything else that people think are actually worth something. But do they give you what they've been freely given or are they giving you what they have purchased? 
But King David sent Ziba, <laughs> that unmovable standard. And you know what Ziba did? He brought him out of that house. And he brought him out of that house of Makur, the son of Emil, from that place called Lodabar where there was no word. David says, get him out of there. That's my son. That's my son. That's Mama Fibosheth. Get him out of there. That's not life. He was made for more. Come on, some of you are sitting in here this morning. You know you're made for more. You know you're made for more, but it's right on the other side of trust. Verse 6, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his faith and he prostrated him and he said, and David said to him, Mephibosheth. <laughs> Saints, how would you feel if you were summoned by the king to his throne and he called you by name? How would you feel if you were summoned to the king's throne and then he brought you to his living room and he called you by your middle name? How would you feel if you were summoned by a king and he invited you to his dinner table with him and his family and he shared with you his name? Now, how would you react when you showed up to the dinner table and he gave you his name? <laughs> Come on, somebody. Come on. You've been conditioned to give an amen. Can I get a call? Man, it's time that you live. It's time that you live. It's time that you live again. John 17, 11 says, I will remain in this world no longer, Yeshua says, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. Hey, by the name you gave me. How did he do that? He gave you that name. Amen. And Mephibosheth answered, Here's your servant. <laughs> Verse 7, so David said to him, do not fear. Why would he say that? Because there's fear present, just like it is when you approach the throne room of God for the first time, second time, 20th time, or third time. You don't know what to do this, but fear is present. And so you disqualify yourself, but you don't realize that faith is most beautiful when fear is present. And you do it anyway. That's Romans 8. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan's sake and for your father's sake. And I will restore to you all the lands of Saul, your grandfather. You shall eat at my table every single day. Every single day you shall eat at my table. Not one day, not a special day, not a religious day. Every single day you'll eat from my table. Why? Because you're going to need it. That makes me think of Numbers 4. Stay where you're at. The table of showbread. What's it also called? The bread of his face. Over the table of the presence, or the table of his presence, they are to spread a blue cloth and put on it plates, dishes, bowls, and jars of drink. What, happened? what, what do you call that when you do that at your house? Man, you call that a feast. Man, it's like Thanksgiving or something. It's a good day. And the bread that is there will be continually there and it will remain on it. 
That means all you got to do is come to the table. Psalm 23, 1, Adonai is my shepherd. I lack no good thing. He has made me to lie down in grassy pastures. He leads me by quiet waters. He restores my inner person. He guides me in right paths for the sake of his own name. Man, that's a promise you can hold on to. Even even if I've passed through death, dark ravines, I will fear no disaster. For you are with me, your rod and staff reassure me. You prepare a table for me even as my enemies watch. Come on, somebody look at the devil and say, watch this. Watch what my daddy about to do. To prepare a table for me in while my enemies watch. What comes from that? What comes next? You anoint my head with oil from an overflowing cup. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> what I get when the Lord delivers me while my enemies watch. Take that revenge. Goodness and grace will pursue me every day of my life. Goodness and grace will pursue me every day of my life. Come on, Joni, you think you can run from the calling of God? But when a fish swallows you up and spits you back right in right where you should be, it's the goodness of God that's been pursuing you the whole way. And he's there when you get there. And I will live in the house. I will live in the family of Adonai for years and years to come. Amen. Saints, do you really believe that this morning? Do you really believe it? Your life is on display to the kingdom of darkness and to this world. That's what that means. Yeshua has chosen you to show the hopeless and those full of shame that he has the power and he has the desire to take a person full of guilt and a person full of shame and completely heal them. Wow. And enable them to walk in full assurance and confidence, even though they are crippled in the natural. Your enemies are watching and waiting for you to fail, and you can feel it. it, Can I get an amen for that one? Your enemies are watching and waiting for you to fail, but every single day is a table set for God and from God. An invitation to find life in him and feast on his goodness. And you can show up to my house at Thanksgiving this year. But the only way that you're going to get full is if you participate. Hello. Come on, Thanksgiving. Thank you. I'm here. This is awesome. Yeah, right. Are you going to participate? Nah, I'm fasting. Okay. Hello. You've been invited to get full. Because being invited and being intimately involved is what you have been invited to. And that's dramatically two different things. Amen. Matthew 22, 1 told us this. Jesus spoke a parable again to him, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused. They refused. They refused to come to an invitation. Who refuses a wedding invitation? I'll tell you who. Those who find no value in the relationships of those who are celebrating the union. 
You don't go to an uh, invitation comes, but you're like, eh, whatever, it's just them. Or those who feel that they can't afford to pay the price to answer the invitation. I can't go. I can't afford church clothes. Oh, I'm sorry, wedding clothes. So I don't go. Or those who are ashamed to show up because they misidentify with the one who invited them. You see, the invitation alone begins a confrontation in you that you have to answer just to show up. Because you need to trust him. And when he sent some of his servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. Tell them I prepared my dinner. Come on. My oxen and my fatted calf have been butchered and everything is ready. So the wedding banquet's ready. But they paid no attention and they went off. One to his field and another to his business. Was it Landon? Somebody else said the other day, your intentions show what you're paying attention to. Your intentions show what you're actually paying attention to. The rest seized his servants, mistreating them, and killed them. And the king was enraged, and he sent an army to destroy those, murder, those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to the servant, the wedding banquet's ready. But those, watch this, but those, watch this, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Who'd he invite? He had just invited those who did not deserve to come. When was the last time you received a wedding invitation and it came with a bill attached to it? No, nobody gets a wedding. I got, I get wedding invitations all the time. I can't make it to all of them. But you know what never came with one of them? A bill. I want you to pay this so that you can come to my wedding. You even think you're reading this and think, listen, it was because of the response. No, they did not deserve to come in the first place. How do I know that? Read verse 9. Go out to the street corners and invite the, the banquet uh, to anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people that they could find, both good and bad. Hello? You would say the bad don't deserve to come, but the good do. He said none of you deserve to come. And the wedding hall was full. <laughs> And the wedding hall was full. Maybe if you knew that you didn't deserve to come in the first place, you'd be on the first train to the actual place. Yeah. Whew, thank you. I didn't have enough to get there anyway. I'm, thank you for letting me know. You can't get married, don't show up. You can't participate in the celebration, you don't get there. Hey, you got to come some way, you're coming this way. What's happening here, saints? You see, we've been reading these parables through religious lenses, but we've been given something fresh these days, and it causes us to understand what he's actually saying. Did the king lower the standard of the guests just because others refused to come? No. Yeshua is clarifying that when he sent out his invitations, invitation to you, the, that it never required qualification. Verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Speech. He could have given an excuse, but he didn't. He was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him in and foot, throw him outside into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Since the invitation does not require qualification, but it does demand participation. Yeah. 
Are you with me? The invitation does not require qualification, but it does demand participation. If you show up to a wedding without wedding clothes, it's because you do not expect to participate. So then you're speechless because you know better. The only reason I would be speechless when confronted about this is because I knew better. I just could not fathom that I was invited for more than just to fill a seat. Or to be the crowd. Or invited to become a number. Hello, welcome to churchianity. No way I was invited to be part of a family procession. That would just be God. Why? Because I am full of harmatia, sin, relational misidentification. Saints, if I would just show up and be ready to sit down at the king's table and participate in those things worked out over dinner, they would work themselves out. Yeshua didn't just purchase the treasure in the field. Come on, Thursday nighters. He purchased your dirt. Each one of you were invited to his table without qualification so that he could qualify you. So it does you no good to sit at his table and spend the whole time trying to create value or to qualify yourself. That's a waste. It does you no good to sit at a table that you've been invited to and spend your whole time trying to create value about yourself or to qualify yourself in order to tell yourself that you should be there. He already told you you should be there. Why? Because he chose you there and put you there. Colossians 1.10. A life lived bearing fruit in every good work is what's given to you. Growing in the knowledge of the Lord, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully, how? Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. To share in his inheritance of the saints of the kingdom of light. For he has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the son he loves. Hey, his table's not sitting in a dark place. It's seated right in the center of the kingdom of light. And that's why most of you don't want to come to it. Nobody likes to turn on the bright lights at home, right? Especially when you're looking in the mirror. (laughs) Dim the lights a little bit. It's just a little more acceptable. But he's pure light. Saints, when the truth is that you have been qualified by the goodness and mercy of God, but when you are mentally, when you mentally believe that you have not been qualified, you are trampling the blood of Jesus. And you are telling him that what he did on the cross was not sufficient enough to sit you at his table. Oh, we thought just your pornography issues, right, and your hatred issues, you thought that was the worst of the things going on in your life. No, look, we need to dig a little deeper. Trust is the main issue. And it's why all the other relationships in your life that are not totally healed are the way they are, because you don't trust. 
because you get up from the table all the time like an immature child that he set you at. And when daddy says, hey, sit down, I'm trying to do a work here. And you're like, man, I'm going to do something else. That'll work too. Uh-uh. No, trust me. Sit at my table. I'm going to feed you. It's going to heal you. You're going to trust me. And so you'll, you'll learn to discern and trust them. Hebrews 6, 6, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace. It's not a private affair. The things going on in your life in public. What things going on in your life? The, th the relationships that you have that we can actually see. It's easy to see when you don't trust God. Because you don't trust anybody around you. 2 Samuel 9, 8. Then... Mephibosheth bowed himself and he said, what is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog like me? Oh, when I just said that, that struck many of your hearts. You know why? Because you think that, say that, and feel like that more times than none. Trampling the blood of Jesus. Why? Because you're not a dead dog any longer. Hello? You're a son. You thought that that false Christian humility was actually humility that Christ carried. You think he thinks he was a dead dog? Did Jesus ever go, I'm a dead dog? So if you're carrying the same humiliation that Christ Jesus carried, that can't be that. I told you we're going to crush some shame in here today. Then he bowed himself and he said, what is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog like I? How many of you felt like that the first time you were invited into a relationship with God? How many of you still feel like that every time you are invited to draw close to God? Amen. A few honest people in here. That's why we're talking about this this morning. Because you may have been raised in a doghouse, but you're standing in God's house. I said you might have been raised in a doghouse, but you're now standing in God's house, and that economy is different than, than what you came out of. He's a good father, whether you have one or not. And if you can do anything, if I can do anything about it this morning, or we can do anything about it this morning, you're not going to just be standing in God's house this morning by the time you leave. You're going to be comfortably seated in his home. What did, what does Isaiah say when he saw? I saw the Lord lifted up high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. And they cried, "What? Holy? What's the theme song of heaven? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty." That's not who let the dogs out. <laughs> who let the dogs out? It's not a theme song in the kingdom of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and so is His body. Romans 8 told us. It says that the glory of the children of God are the freedom that comes from the glory of sons being manifest in the earth. Verse 9. And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, I have given to your master's son. <laughs> and the king said to Ziba, 
I am going to give to your master's son all that belong to Saul's house. And you, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. And you shall bring in a harvest that your master's son might have food every single day. And But Mephibosheth, listen, Mephibosheth, listen, Mephibosheth, your master's son shall eat bread at my table always. Now, Ziba and your fifth sons and 20 servants you're going to serve the house of Mephibosheth <laughs> and Ziba said to the king according to all that my lord the king has commanded in his servants so will your servant do what what man are you getting this this morning I'm getting fed up here this morning I don't know what I don't apologize. I'm, I am madly in love with Jesus. I understand what he's given to me. And if you can get some of this, we'll all be bouncing all over the walls over here. What just happened? Mephibosheth was a child that escaped dysfunctional life. He escaped the entire dysfunction of a dysfunctional family, but without marks on, but without marks on his body? No, he had marks. And he is sought out by the goodness and the kindness of the king. And he is found by covenant love. And the first thing that the king does is to reverse the curse and give the son the inheritance that belonged to the father. Why? Because the father denounced it, but the son says yes. What the father forfeited, the son receives. What the father forfeited, the son receives. Why is that good news for you? Because many of you, like me, came from a dysfunctional place, and the calling of God was on the people of God and the people in your life, but they forfeited it. And you know what? God didn't change. They did. God didn't change, and he had something he wanted to pour out. And because he couldn't pour it out on them, he's going to pour it out on you. If he couldn't pour it out on them, he's going to pour it out on you. You think he just detracted and said, okay, I can't do that. No, he said, I'm going to wait till the next generation. Oh, there's one that'll say yes. <laughs> He's crippled. So what? Yes, praise the Lord. Mm. Mephibosheth lost all of his brothers. Mephibosheth lost all of his brothers to death. And now a man is surrounded by many brothers from another mother, if he would receive it. Man, do you see what's going on in Mephibosheth's life? What his father said no to, the son has the opportunity to say yes to. There have been people in your genealogy you don't even know. People called by God who forfeited the inheritance, and you're now receiving what other men work for. Somebody put in a prayer, and that's why you're standing here this morning. Somebody put in a little bit of mm, something to heaven, and it got poured out in your generation. Four generations ago, you had a grandma or a grandpa that was pleading before the Lord, right, because all their family fell away. And they said, will you come again and bring revival? And he said, yes, and they didn't see it, but if they were alive today, they'd be watching it in your life. Today, you're an answer to prayer. You're receiving something you didn't work for. You're receiving the mercy and the goodness of God. Come on. Where's your hope? Where's your trust? Where's your faith? He's reviving you today. Your revival's happening right here. Mm. That's how good your God is. That's who your king is. What are you going to do with a God like that? Mm. 
Just sit at his table. We'll figure it out. Saints, what Mephibosheth's fathers said no to, now he has an opportunity to say yes to. All that was supposed to be received by the previous generation is now presented to the present generation. All that the previous generation was supposed to receive now is present in this generation, and that's you and me. Amen? Saints, the gifting and the calling of God are irrevocable and he will not hold on to what he wants to pour out. He will not hold on to what he wants to pour out until somebody in his house steps up and say, I might be crippled, but you're going to make me walk. And not only that, because Mephibosheth was crippled, he literally must be placed at the king's table to eat always. He must be picked up and he must be carried and he must be placed at the table and even when he wants to run, he's got to ask somebody to help him. You know what that looks like because last time you ran, you fell right out the seat because he gave you the grace of your crippled feet. And I wonder if my... This morning, I wonder if there may be somebody in here. Thank God for their crippled feet. Because if you had them, all you're going to do is use them to run away. I think it might be better for some of you if you were crippled so that you would stop running away from the table that Yeshua literally placed you at every single time you are insecure to stay put. Or every single time that you're too dull to realize that Yeshua is doing a thing and something in your life. How many of you felt sorry for Mephibosheth when you first heard about him? Because you think he lost something the day that he lost his ability to walk. See, that's the problem. You're so focused on what you don't have instead of what you do have. Mephibosheth was not able to walk, but he was able to be seated. And because of that, it dispelled his shame. The Lord needs to cut off some of your faculties that he might facilitate faithfulness in you. Mm. You see, you think it is your great ability to walk well, your great ability to perform well, your great ability to present well, and your great ability to posture perfectly that got you anywhere. Saints, tell that to Mephibosheth. Tell that gospel to Mephibosheth, and he's going to tell you that you do not know what king is sitting at the table and that you need to sit down for a minute so that you might take time with your king Instead of sulking about him, he's going to teach you what he's actually like and actually give you some joy that you've been hunting your whole life everywhere else but at his table. Oh, y'all not hearing me this morning. 2 Peter 1.3 says, it is his divine nature. He has bestowed on you, upon all of us, he has suited you with life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory for his excellence. Mm. 
By means of these, he has bestowed on us his precious and his exceedingly great promises so that through them you might escape the moral decay that is in the world because of covetedness and become sharers in the divine nature. How do you escape these things? You participate. How do I escape? Participate. How do I escape? Participate. Hello? In what he's already given to you. Stop sitting at the table and not eating. Stop sitting at the table and feasting on the king's feast, but not speaking to him. Not looking him in the eye. Not letting him confront your shame and your guilt that you brought to the table as though he didn't know it. Because that's why he brought you to the table. Ephesians 3.16, may he grant you out of his rich treasury. May he give you from the treasury of heaven something here on earth of his glory to be strengthened, to be reinforced with mighty power in the inner man by his Holy Ghost. May Christ through faith dwell, settle down, abide, make his permanent home in your hearts. May he be rooted deep in love and founded securely on love that you might have the power and that you might be strong and to apprehend and grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and the depth, all of that. To know the love of Christ which far surpasses mere knowledge. He's not an intellectual pursuit. He's in heart impact. With the breadth and length of the height of death, which far surpasses knowledge, so that you might be filled. Anybody want to be fulfilled in this place? Well, that takes two things to be full and filled. Neither one of those have to do with emptiness. Until the fullness of God, the fullness of God comes. <laughs> Whoever, I don't know where y'all went to church at your previous life. But if they didn't tell you, you came to get full before you leave. That's why you're here today, actually. Because somebody needed to. Colossians 2, 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been, have been, have been, have been given fullness of Christ. Past tense, Hello? Who is the head over every power and authority? Saints Mephibosheth was given every single thing that belonged to the king. Just like you were given every single thing that belonged to Yeshua. All of you for all of him. Great exchange. Hallelujah. So why is it that we can sit in many other seats. Although we are placed in the center of his seat. What do you mean? Psalm 1, 1 says this about men. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinner or sit in the seat of mockers. Saints, you can't sit at the king's table and sit in a seat of mockers at the same time. You can't do it. Let me help you out. 
I'm going to translate this for you. Translation, happy is the man who is not moved by the ideas of those who carry guilt, nor joins in the journey of those living in condemnation, nor dwells in the seat of false imitators. Literal translation. Literal Hebrew translation. I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to read that again. Happy, happy, happy is the man who is not Moved by the ideas of those who carry guilt. Nor joins in the journey of those living in condemnation. Nor dwells in the seat of false imitators. Saints, you were designed to be securely seated, but you must become a securely seated son. Or you will find yourself seated in the seat of mockers. Verse 2, but he, delights, but he who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Come on. Listen to the seed for women. Proverbs, 20, Proverbs 9, 13. A foolish woman is coarse. She doesn't think. She doesn't know a thing. She sits at the door of her house and on a seat at the high, heights of the city, calling to those who pass by, to those going straight along their ways. Whatever is unsure of him, turn in here. Oh, let me translate that for you. Literal translation. The foolish woman is emotionally reckless and naive because she doesn't experientially understand what she's talking about. She is seated on a self-exalted throne she calls home, spending her time calling out to the naive and feeding their insecurity in order to appease her own. One more time. A foolish woman is emotionally reckless and naive because she doesn't experientially understand what she's talking about. She is seated on a self-exalted throne she calls home, spending her time calling out to the naive and feeding their insecurity in order to appease her own. Proverbs 9.13 in Psalm 1-1, fact check me. Mephibosheth was a man just like you, exiting a house of dysfunction. Becoming a person who's letting God exterminate the idolatry of shame. The idolatry of shame. The idolatry of shame. So that he might be seated in a secure place called a son. Saints, why is it not enough that you have been given all things by God for godliness and a full life right now? It's because you were not just created to receive his presence. You were designed to reflect his presence. You can't show up and just be a consumer. You must be a contributor to the reflection of God. That's why we can't just gather. We must grow. 
Hebrews 1.1, in the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, which you live in, he has spoken to us by his son and through sonship, whom he appointed heir to all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God, just like you wives are the radiance of your husband's. Christ Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sin, you know what he did? He sat down. And you will too when you understand this revelation about you. But first, you have to understand it about him at the right hand of the father and the majesty in heaven. Saints, you were called by the son. To not just settle as a servant, you were invited by the father to become one of his sons. And until you get the revelation, you are going to live a life seated at a table with guilt and seated at a table with shame that keeps you from having the necessary conversations to cleanse you from those things. Second Samuel 9-11. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, <laughs> As for Mephibosheth, said the king. What does Mephibosheth's mean, name mean? Dispeller of shame. He, the one who's having his shame dispelled, he who I am working through, the dispeller of shame, he is the one that, my, that will sit at my table like one of the king's sons. He's not just a guest. Saints, at some point, you and I have to stop being guests in one another's life and actually become family. Or you're wasting your time here. And he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Saints, that was a promise to Mephibosheth that David made good on. And it's the promise that Yeshua has made to you that he will make good on. You will eat at the table and feel just like one of the sons. One of the father's sons because you have been adopted into the royal family. Verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continuously at the king's table. What an end of a story. What an end of an event. If that were it, but it's not. And he was lame in both feet. Saints Mephibosheth's crippled feet never got healed, but his broken heart did. 
And when you allow God to heal these areas of your life that he knows really need healing, you will finally realize that you didn't need to depend on those crippled feet anyway. Because they would just lead you astray. It's time that we stop striving for God to give us what other men have. I said it's time to stop striving and praying and wishing and asking God, give me what that man has because that'll cure it all. It's time that we stop striving for God to give us what other men have and trust him to work with exactly what he has given you. If you have answered this invitation like Mephibosheth did today and you are praying for him to give you what you do not have, you need to stop it. Consider that biblical counsel. Just stop it. And you need to start to ask him to work supernaturally through what you do have. I got many friends who live their whole life in a wheelchair and you know what? They're not a victim mentality in them. They know that they can do every single thing I can. And it convicts me. Yeah. Saints, Mephibosheth is a prophetic picture for you today. I said it's a prophetic picture for you today. Yes, I'm talking to you. Because Mephibosheth's name means dispeller of shame. But what I didn't tell you is what it also means. It also means exterminating idolatry. Mephibosheth's name means dispeller of shame while he's exterminating the idolatry in you. Mm -mm, No, come on. Listen to me, because that is what happens when you become securely seated at a table and allow God to father you. To expel the idolatry of this shame-driven relationship you call Christianity. It's idolatry. You let shame drive you instead of his spirit of adoption lead you. That, my friend, is idolatry. Why? Because idolatry is whatever keeps you from being like this with God. You expel the idolatry of this shame-driven relationship you call Christianity, and you finally become bare-naked and unashamed when you begin to praise Him for what you are and not what you are not. Your idolatrous religion will, be, will begin to crumble when you get this. You say this place is full of churches. No, it's not. It's full of idolatrous institutions and a handful of churches. And praise God for the men who are standing on the front line. And we pray for those to get a revelation so that their institutions might become organisms and actually allow people to come into their house and actually meet God. I so badly want God to exterminate the idolatry of your shame-driven churchianity. 
I so badly want to. I can't make that happen. Only he can. And it only happens by you saying yes to the table that he sent you at. Right. And relieving yourself from that spiritual anxiety that he did not give you and actually trust him and actually believe his word for what it says it is. If he says you are the righteousness of Christ, it doesn't matter if you feel like it or not. That's the truth. If he says that you're my son, even though right, you're over here doing things that sons do not. That still doesn't, the truth doesn't require you to believe in it for it to be true. It's just true. So step up to the plate. Step up to the conversation. Sit at his table. Let's talk about it because you're going to draw close to him. And finally, you know, you can trust him. And when you trust him, you'll start to follow him. And when you follow him, you won't be following after every idolatrous thing in there or every devil over here or every lust that you have or every feeling or everything that leads you astray because you think you have value over here. Right. Or somebody loves you you over there he don't love you ladies Jesus does he don't love you ladies Jesus does and if he loved the Lord right he would love you rightly instead of lead you astray she don't love you man she's virtual stop looking at her don't press play you're not getting anything from her that you actually need that crap that garbage is depleting your manhood Listen to me, single man. I'm a married man. Do yourself a favor. Run from that and run to the Lord. That way your vitality might stay that way because you're going to need it for your marriage. I'm going to end here today. We're going to worship in a minute. Actually, worship team, why don't you go ahead and start coming up. But I don't want you to lose focus with me for a minute. This is very important. I have a young friend named Jamarian. He was adopted. You see, Jamarian came out of South Chicago, and he was adopted into a precious family, elder family of ours that we love. And Jamarian was there for many years. But you see, because you're adopted and you come out of a systematic thing, controlled by the world, brokenness and dysfunction, when you adopt somebody or foster somebody in order to adopt them, they tell you how you raise the kid while, they, while the kid hangs out in your house. Y'all get that, right? Yeah. Miss a lot of adopted people in here. So although you might want to give biblical discipline or behavior or whatever, you can't. You have to do what they say. But when the papers are signed and everything's final, things change. Now they get to live under your authority and not the authority of another. You see, you've been adopted. You're not being fostered. You've been adopted. You're not fostered. That's done. Jamarian, as a young man, got to live in the house, a godly house. But his siblings, in his mind, the others being raised with him, were disciplined different. Because they could not discipline him in a godly way, they had to discipline him in a godly way, but also with that other authority who said, you can't do this. What it created in the young man was a, was a distinction. But the adoption work was done, and it's all the same to him. He's a kid. He doesn't understand the major, massive exchange that happened with him the day that his foster parents became his adoptive parents. 
He doesn't know. They tell him to throw a party, right? Here's a cake, and he's like, cool. Yeah, anyway. But you know the day that he understood that something had fundamentally changed? It's the day that his father spanked him. The day his father spanked him for the first time, even though he had tears in his eyes, he looked back with a smile. Why? His dad didn't know what was going on. He looked at his dad and he said, and he's like, why are you smiling? He says, because today, daddy, you're spanking me like you spanked the other children. I know I'm your son. <laughs> Saints, there's a difference between discipline and punishment. And when you're hearing the word today and it's correcting some of the things you haven't gotten yet, that's discipline. It's disciplining your soul to line up with the standard of God that says to you who you are and what you are, whether you believe it or not, and you crucify those emotions and you crucify those feelings that tell you otherwise because you have been adopted if you've given your life to the Lord. If you haven't, you need to today. And we're going to give you an opportunity for that. But listen to me. Mephibosheth had become a sellout because he settled for the idolatry of shame-driven religion. And Yeshua hunted him down. Yeshua, David, like King David, like Yeshua, hunted him down to reveal to him that he was called to more than settling. He was called to more than settling. He was called to be seated. I said he was called to more than settling. He was called to be seated. That is where you exterminate the idolatry of shame that Yeshua died to free you from. Mephibosheth received the move of God that his father and grandfather rejected simply because he said yes to what they said no to. Friends, that's not complicated. It just takes trust. Stand with me this morning. Many of you showed up here with an expectation of receiving what you always have for merely showing up. That comes from idolatry and conforming. You need to toss your preconceived ideas right now. And you need to ask God to wreck you. I don't care if you've been serving the Lord for one year or a hundred years. You need a fresh move of God. And it's available for you. I'm a passionate man. I speak authoritatively. I understand that. That's because I understand my flesh and your flesh and how it needs someone to pierce it. That's why I speak the way I do. But I want to tell you right now and appeal to you as a brother in the Lord. I love the Lord and he loves you far more than I ever can. And he wants you to have the fullness of the inheritance that he paid for. 
and to crush that man-pleasing spirit and that shame-driven religion that's in your heart. And he wants you to be free, free, free indeed. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. He formed you while he was, you were in his mother womb. He has freedom for you now. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and to give you a future. Then you will call upon me. Then you will. He knows you don't trust him. But he's willing to give you all of him in order that he might get some of that back. Because he knows it's good for you. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You want to find more depth of the Lord than you previously have? Give him more of your heart. The lieb, the center of yourself, everything, every reserve inside of you, give to him. That means you radically amputate what you were. I'm done with it. And you radically put on a truth that you know you don't understand, but you trust. In that moment, heaven creates an exchange right here in this old dirt. And you get what he deserves. <laughs> you get what he deserves. Man, I need what he deserves. Come on. Saints, these altars should be filled today. Don't leave here before you get right with God. And what I mean by that is you might be righteous before God, but there's a section of your heart that still is a cavern, and that's what he comes to fill.